Good morning, church. Happy 4th of July weekend. I am glad to have you here as a part of our 8.30 service, our 8.45 service this morning. And so grateful for the opportunity that we have to worship together, to assemble together this morning. Uh, freedom is never free, and I hope you remember that as you celebrate with family tomorrow. Most of you enjoying the day off and probably eating hot dogs and hamburgers and steaks and so on. Uh, remember, freedom isn't free, and we get to uh, enjoy all the freedoms we have here in America. It's not uh, a perfect place by any stretch of the imagination, but if you go to any place else in the world, I would say far better place than any other place in the world. I'm grateful to be an American. I'm grateful to be here this morning. I'm grateful to be here at Desert Hills this morning studying the book of Ephesians. If you take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to get through verses 1 through 13 this morning with a message entitled, God's Mystery Revealed. Now, many of you may have grown up like I grew up, uh, engrossed in wanting to solve mysteries. In fact, my children, now here's a picture of them when they were small, they had this idea that uh, they were going to uh, uh, get charged a fee, and as somebody paid them a fee, uh, they would uh, um, uh, solve their mystery. So they would sit there in front of the house, and they had these little signs, and uh, some of the neighbors would come over and entertain them as they're out, and their whole spiel was, uh, if you pay me a dollar, I'll solve whatever mystery you have. In fact, my daughter Ashlyn, she had gotten some uh, spy equipment like how to listen, a, a, a little device that allowed you to listen through things. Listening through doors. Mom and I had to watch out for that one. <laughs> um, uh, telescopes, binoculars, all these things because they were intent, they were going to solve mysteries. Now, I remember reading as a young age, we had a little library, a little community library down the road from our house. It was a little five-minute bike ride. We'd get on our bikes, and we'd go down to the library in the summertime, and I read all of the 53 or 55 Hardy Boys books. Our library had every one of them, and then when I got done with them, shh, I read Nancy Drew, Okay. <laughs> And, and I read some of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And, and, and then every young person that is my age or just a little bit younger or a little bit older all grew up with this guy and these people here. Scooby-Doo. You got Fred and you got Daphne and Shaggy and Scoob. And, oh, get rid of the little guy at the end, amen. Uh, the little guy was, uh, he ruined it for Scooby-Doo. And uh, Velma. And I mean, Scooby and Shaggy and Daphne and Velma, they would go off and solve their mysteries. And I mean, there was the uh, Minor 49er, the ghost of Captain Cutler, the ape man, the puppet master, the scariest of all, the blue guy with the skeleton head, uh, the uh, space kook he was called, the ghost of Redbeard and the pirate and his gang. And man, you'd watch Scooby-Doo, you'd get engrossed, you'd see this evil villain trying to shoot people away from an airport or a mine or whatever because they had their ulterior motives and in the end Scooby and Shaggy would catch them and they would all find out that they weren't real. But that caused me to have this desire to solve mysteries. Now the mystery that God reveals in our text this morning 
is not the solving of an unknown crime. In fact, the word for mystery spoken of here in our text has the idea of God revealing something beyond our natural knowledge and understanding. And here in Ephesians, the something beyond our natural knowledge or understanding or God's mystery is mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 10, where Paul says, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are literally His masterpiece. We are literally His new creations brought nigh by the blood of Christ, verse 13, chapter 2. And this mystery is further explained in chapter 2, verse 15, where we are told that the nearness or reconciliation happened to make in Himself twain one new man, a new people, the church. Now, this teaching is so amazing that God uses Paul to give three images, which we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, to explain the mystery in chapter 2, verse 19. It says, now, therefore, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, a new nation, and of the household of God, a new family, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the Word of God, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building is fitly framed together, groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also we are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. There's a new building, so there's a new nation, a new family, and a new building. Now, God revealed this mystery to Paul and the other apostles. Now, before this... Every Jew had the idea that the Messiah would come and then the Messiah would establish his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem with Jews ruling and reigning with the Messiah. They did not realize that Jesus' kingdom was a kingdom of truth. And this truth was to be lived out in the lives of his disciples and to be extended to the Gentiles. But God revealed this mystery to the apostles. And as we look at the text, we notice how the mystery is understood. We see an explanation of the mystery. Now, Paul spoke of this knowledge beyond their natural understanding, this mystery, in a parallel passage in Colossians when he writes, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And then he goes on to say this, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now manifest to the saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the mystery or the concept of the church was hid in the Old Testament time, but was revealed in God's time. Now, something wonderful and unforeseen that the Jews and Gentiles would share in the riches of redemption and the hope of eternal life. Now, for the Old Testament prophet, for the guys like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah, they didn't see this part of God's program. They thought the Messiah would come, he would establish his kingdom with Israel, Israel would rule and reign with him for eternity. They didn't see a a, a group of Gentiles being incorporated into this new body, this new building, this new nation, this new family, this new household. They didn't understand that. But now, during the time of Paul and the apostles, God was making this thing known. In fact, in our text, this is what God allows Paul to communicate. He writes, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me 
the mystery, as I wrote in a, a four in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge and the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of man, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And notice what it goes on to say, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Now, he points out that the Gentiles would be heirs together with the Jews, fellow heirs. Now, never in a million years would the Jews of Paul's day have imagined that Gentiles would share with them in anything. Never in a million years, let alone they would share eternity with them. There were clearly walls of separation between Jews and Gentiles. They despised each other's customs. They despised each other's traditions. They despised each other's clothes. They despised each other's food. Imagine a, a Jewish man sitting down to eat and across the table from him, a, a Gentile eating some pork. And on top of that, uh, uh, some shellfish is added to the plate. And on top of that, he's eating with unwashed hands. And on top of that, his beard isn't cut a certain way, and his head isn't covered a certain way. And on top of that, his garments aren't a, a certain length. I mean, before the church came about, that would have been unheard of. I mean, these people despised everything about one another. They despised their food, their hairstyles, their work styles, and almost everything about each other. But God uses Paul to share that not only Gentiles are fellows in the same body, but that they're fellow heirs sharing the same inheritance of eternity future. Not only that, the Holy Spirit, the same God, the same worship, and the same Word of God. They are all heirs together of all of those things. In fact, this is how Paul explains this unique union to the church at Rome. Here's what he says. He says, now this I say, that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to the Jews to give them the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And notice what it says in verse 9. It says, And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah said, There shall be a root out of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. Isaiah even predicted that the Gentiles would trust in the same God and be heirs of the, the, the Messiah when he would come. And then notice what it goes on to say in the last verse, verse 13, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Now as we understand the mystery of the church explained, the church was to be comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, not just as fellows of the same body, but fellow heirs, standing to inherit all of the same promises. Now, not only that, they were also members together. Notice what it says, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, of the same body. 
Now I have uh, one body. I have uh, uh, 10 fingers. I have 10 toes. I have two arms. I have two legs. I have one mouth currently. I have two ears. When I was uh, coaching wrestling or wrestling, those ears started to get a little flattened and I started to get a little cauliflower ear and I did not want to have those funky cauliflower ears and so I would make a point to always wear some headgear so my ears would be prevented from getting cauliflower ear. But I have two ears, one nose, two nostrils, two eyes, two eyebrows right now. Hopefully barbecue and tomorrow, I'll still have two eyebrows tomorrow. But you know, we all have our same body parts. And here's the thing. We have one body. Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, For as the body is one, it hath many members. And all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So also are those that are placed into Christ. So also are those that are in Christ, that have received Jesus' payment as their own, that have repented of their sin and turned to Jesus by faith, receiving him who knew no sin but became sin for us. But notice what it goes on to say, and for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and we've been all made to drink in one spirit. Now, within our body, when our body needs nourishment, we feed it. We feed it. When it needs rest, hopefully, we rest it. When one part of our body is hurting, we don't say, you know what, that part of my body is hurting, so I'm going to cut it off. No, we give it attention. When one part of our body is not functioning properly, we don't ignore it. We seek to rehabilitate it. Now, as members together, Jews who had become Christians and Gentiles who had become Christians, both of these groups needed to be reminded that they were no longer separate, but that they were one in Jesus Christ. They were members together. They were to care for one another as, of, as if they were part of the same union, same family, same relationship, belonging to the same physical body. And that's how we're to care for one another in the church. Oh, we have uh, a family uh, moving away and they're going to Illinois. You know what? I'll be praying for that family. We have another family here this morning. They're dealing with some health problems and another family that's dealing with some loss and another family that's dealing with some health problems. You know what? We want to pray for them. We want to come alongside of them. We want to help support them. You know what? That's what I would do for my own body. And that's what we need to do for the body of Christ. You see, we're members together, we're heirs together, and then we see something else, we share together. We share together. Notice what the Bible says, and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Point number three, we share together. Yes, there are blessings, and yes, there are promises that are still exclusive to the Jewish people, but the promise of the Messiah, the promise of eternal life, the promise of the Holy Spirit has been extended to everyone that is a part of the family of God that's a part of the church. 
And as a result, we get to enjoy being heirs together and members together and sharing together because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, tore down the walls, the barriers, cultural and social between everyone that has claimed the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we as Christians shouldn't have any prejudicial walls that keep us from understanding our brotherhood. Now, I remember uh, preaching years ago. We were in the school at Jasinski, and we were a, a young church, and we had uh, uh, whoever was coming at that time. It was a young church, and, and there was a, a man that was doing some construction work in our area because they were doing some construction projects as our area was growing. And the man was from a, a certain state in the south, and, and uh, he... Uh, had come to our church and they were excited about what the Lord was doing and they, they enjoyed Bible preaching and the community that we had and the blended worship that we had and so on. And, and he came to our church and he understood that our church was trying to reach everybody. We were a young church, but our church was pretty diverse at the time. We had uh, people that were Hispanic, like myself. We had uh, families that uh, were, were black. We had families that were, were Asian. We had families that were white. And, and our church was pretty diverse. And where he came from, the church where he grew up in, it, it, it all looked like him. And I got up and I preached from John chapter 3 where the Bible talks about the world's most famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I explained what the word world actually meant. And the word world means everybody. Every skin tone, every background, every, every nationality, every language, everybody, absolutely everybody. And so I said, if you're here this morning and you have racial animus towards anybody that's different than you, if you've had hatred, if you've had a, a philosophy that you think you're better than anybody else, and I just let it loose and I start preaching. At the end of the service, this man walked forward and he said, Pastor, my wife and I need to talk to you about something. And we didn't give invitations. We're asking people to come forward necessarily. People would deal with stuff at their seat. But he wanted to talk to me about something and Service is still going on. People have their heads bowed and eyes closed. And I said, I says, what is it? And he said, for all the years, he was 60-some years of age, all the years of my life, I've had racial animus towards people that weren't like me. And he says, this morning, God has convicted me of the sin of prejudice in my heart. And in all my years of ministering at that point, it was probably almost 20 years. I'd never had anything like that happen in my life. And I said, well, let's pray that God can help you to repent of that. So I got down. The service is still going on. I'm down in the front praying with this couple. And, and that man, he was with us for another year longer. That man changed. So what I'm saying, as I know it still exists, what I'm saying is I know it can still be a problem. What I'm saying is the walls that Paul is speaking of in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 being torn down are still torn down. 
And if you're a part of Desert Hills Baptist Church, I want you to understand your brother or sister in Christ may not look like you, they may not act like you, they may not come from the same background as you, but as sure as Jesus is Lord, if you're saved and they're saved, that's your brother, that's your sister. We are heirs together, we are members together, and we share together. And then we see not only the mystery of the church explained, we see, secondly, uh, the ministry of the mystery of the church explained. Now, after explaining the mystery of the church so that former Jewish and Gentile believers could understand God's plan and program for the church, Paul goes on in verse 7 and 8 to speak of his own personal ministry to the mystery or the church. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me who am the less than the least of all the saints. Did you get that? The less of the least of all the saints is this grace given. Now, in the text, Paul gets creative with the language. Uh, he takes the Greek word for least or smallest and adds an ending which is not feasible linguistically so that he contrives the word. In our modern language, it would be the leaster. The leaster. Now, some think he's playing off his Latin name, Paulus, which means little or small. So the idea is, I am little by name, I am little in stature, and normal, uh, morally and spiritually littler than the least of all the Christians, the saints. In other words, Paul wants them to understand he recognizes who he is. I am small Paul. I am small Paul. It would be good for some of us not to think we have to win every argument. <laughs> it would be good for some of us not to think that we're the best of the best in our own eyes all the time. It would be good for some of us to, to, to not speak when we want to speak, to not give our mind when we want to give our mind. It would be good for some of us to just simply shut up sometimes and understand not to let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Paul was saying, I had to be humbled to understand who I really was. He had a deep sense of understanding who and what he was apart from Jesus Christ. In fact, he expressed this when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, for I am the least of the apostles, and I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He goes on to say in Timothy, he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And notice what he says, of who I'm, I am, whom I am chief. In other words, he said, I am the chief of the chiefest of sinners. He said, find a sinner, go, go find a sinner and bring him to me and we'll have a spitting contest and I'll win every time. I'm the biggest sinner I know, he said. And then he goes on to say, how, how be it for this cause? I obtain mercy, then in me, first Christ Jesus might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which hereafter should believe on him to everlasting life. And then he says, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. 
You see, Paul really got to the point in his life where he viewed himself as small Paul. He viewed himself as nothing and God and Jesus as eternal, immortal, invisible, wise, and deserving of honor and glory. He realized he was not deserving of any of those things, honor and glory and wisdom, which before salvation he thought he was. But now he viewed God as only deserving of honor and glory. And as Paul explained the ministry of the church, he focused his message on three things. Notice he said that Christ was to be preached to the Gentiles. Notice in verse 8, unto me who am less than the least of all the saints is this grace given, but I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now the phrase unsearchable has the idea of riches that cannot be tracked, riches that cannot be fully calculated, riches that cannot be fully fathomed. When we think about the riches that we are to impart, we are to share, these riches are saving riches. These riches are saving riches. Here's what Peter says. It says, for as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but you're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, we don't have a cheap salvation because our salvation didn't come with a cheap cost. The cost was the blood of God's only begotten Son. And it was the greatest price. Uh, the God-man lived in a body for 33 years without sinning one time. God became man so that man could have the perfect sacrifice. And he lived that life unspotted, untainted from the world. Even though he was in the world, he did not become of the a system of the world. And he ultimately gave his life for every one of us. These riches are saving riches. These riches are sanctifying riches. Here's what Second Peter is, is, says and communicates. It says, As according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and to godliness through the knowledge of him who hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be made partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world, through lust. You say, God doesn't, hasn't given me the tools whereby to live the Christian life. God hasn't given me an instruction manual. Oh, no, 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 no. Yes, he has. By these, you might be made partakers of the divine nature. These are sanctifying riches. And not only that, these are evangelistic riches. Here's what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them who are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. And then it says, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then it says this, but we have this treasure. What treasure? The treasure of Jesus Christ in this earthen vessel, in this clay pot. We're the clay pot. The only thing good about us is Jesus Christ. 
we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency may be of the power of God and not of us. These riches are eternal riches. Eternal riches. I love what 1 Peter chapter 1 says. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his uh, abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, and here's how it comes, and here's how we keep it, or here's how it's kept, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Eternal riches, it's not your job to keep your salvation. It's God's job to keep your salvation. And salvation comes through faith. And what we don't understand is one of the greatest things that we have as Christians is hope. Hope that this world isn't our home. Hope that we're just strangers and pilgrims in this world. Hope that we know we have eternal life promised to us as believers because we're kept by the power of God. You see, Jesus Christ always enriches our lives. We never lose anything when we become a Christian when we become a Christian, we gain everything. <laughs> and we as Christians, as Paul spoke of his ministry, he said one of the opportunities of the church or the mystery is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I've heard a couple sports athletes stand up to give testimony and they'll say, you know what, uh, I was a pro football player, I used to be a defensive lineman for the uh, Miami Dolphins, or I used to be a defensive lineman for the Baltimore Ravens, or I used to be a running back for the Chicago Bears, or I used to do this or that, but I gave it all up to serve Jesus Christ. And I think to myself, you didn't give up anything, you gained everything. <laughs> Big dummy. <laughs> Secondly, Paul was used of God to explain also that the ministry of the church was that the world would know God's plan for the church. And notice what it says. It says, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who God created, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now, the church was to show the whole world that you could bring people together from completely different backgrounds, from completely different cultures, and you could have harmony. People that had previous racial and cultural and social animus and hatred, and they could set that down because they realized they were part of a new body and a new family and represented a new nation. The church also has that opportunity today. You know, we're not always going to agree on everything. In fact, yesterday, I, my daughter, uh, I told her I would take her to a certain grocery store, and she was pretty excited about it. In fact, I was hoping she forgot about it Saturday morning. And then Saturday mid-morning, she said, Hey, Dad, are we still going to the whatever market? And I'm like, oh, okay, yes. Yes, we're going. And so we got in the car, I went together, and on the way home, I was a little hungry. I said to my daughter, I said, uh, are you hungry? She said, yes, and we started talking about where we're going to go. She didn't want to go inside anywhere, so I said, okay, let's go to get uh, some Popeyes, amen? 
Nothing like a good Popeye's number one chicken sandwich, amen? Not the spicy kind. I don't want to be upset at night. Not the spicy kind, but just the number one with some red beans and rice, amen? A good old-fashioned uh, sweet tea or Diet Coke with that. And uh-uh, Chick-fil-A ain't got nothing on Popeye's. You want to prove it? Let's go get a sandwich after church and find out who's got the best sandwich. Ah, Chick-fil-A's not open on Sunday. Ah, Popeye's all the way. But we were on our way home, and I said, hey, hey can you text mom and ask her if she wants uh, anything from Popeye's? And so I get this response, and all you Apple users know exactly what this is all about, and, and, and it just drives me crazy. But you send an Apple person a text, and they can love the text, they can like the text, or they can dislike the text. Now, what does that mean? Do you dislike what I'm saying in my text? Do you dislike that I would ask you if you want anything from Popeyes? Do you dislike food? What do you not like? So, so I, my daughter sends my wife, uh, do you want anything for Popeyes? Dad's going to stop at Popeyes. And, and back comes the, and it pops up on my Bluetooth, my screen, it says, disliked. And I'm like, what is wrong with, what does dislike mean anyways? And my daughter's hearing me in my car. And, and then I said, I'm going to call your mom. And, and, and so she just starts laughing. She knows it drives me nuts when uh, you don't answer. Just say yes or no. How hard is that? Yes or no, Apple users? How hard is that? Yes, you want Popeyes? Yes. Do you want not Popeyes? Don't want Popeyes? No. What's dislike mean? Come on now. Am I by myself up here this morning? I'm by myself. All Apple users here today. <laughs> so anyways, I call her up, and she's laughing about it, and she says, Adam Zamora, you are the funniest person in the world. You are one of the most level-headed, don't-get-rattled, uh, uh, calm people, even-tempered people when I, uh, that I know. But when you really don't like something, boy, you get really upset about it. And so every one of my texts for the last couple days, she disliked every one of them. They're all stuck popping up on my screen. Uh, and I'm like, ah, please stop. But you know what? My wife and I, in that, is an illustration of how we don't always agree as human beings on things. It still is getting me kind of riled up right now. We don't always agree on everything. But you know what? It's okay. It's okay to have dumb Apple users. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay, Adam. It's okay. It's okay. But the church dealt with things that were serious. They were serious. I mean, they literally had sections in the Jewish quarters of cities where Gentiles could not come. Signs. No Gentiles allowed. They literally had signs in certain sectors of Gentile cities. No Jews allowed. And there were literal walls of separation that kept people from coming together. And now you bring these people together in a church and you're telling them that they're one. 
And so God literally had to tear down some walls. We see the world was to know God's plan for the church, and then lastly, heavenly powers would understand God's wisdom through the ministry of the church. Notice what it says. To the intent that now unto principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now let me set the stage here. The theater is history. The stage is the world. The actors are believers in the church. The writer and producer is God who directs and produces the drama unfolding throughout our world and history. And the audience, principalities and powers in heavenly places, angels, angelic beings, cherubim, seraphim. Here's what John Stott, the commentator, said. He said, it is through the old creation, the universe, that God reveals his glory to humans. We call that general revelation. It is through the new creation, the church, that he reveals his wisdom to angels. And as these angelic beings observe, they see racial walls torn down. They see unity and harmony when there was once war and hatred. They see love instead of wrath. They see reconciliation between God and reconciliation between man. They see the chains of sin broken through the Holy Spirit's power. They see the pits of discouragement being emptied. They see souls being nourished. They see families experiencing wholeness. They see forgiveness being ministered. They see God's hand at work in the lives of individuals, and they understand in this the various facets, the many colors, the manifold wisdom of God. Now, as heirs together and members together and sharing together, we get to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to anyone that will listen. We get to share in this earthen vessel the treasure that we have, the treasure that we have is Jesus. We get to let the world and angelic beings see what, what the gospel has really done to each one of us and how that God can bring reconciliation between himself and between man and between man and others in God's mystery as it's already revealed in the church. We get to share this with everyone who needs to hear it. When I got saved, I was looking for a place of peace. Because at the time when I got saved, there wasn't peace in my home. My parents were right in the middle of a divorce. There was animus between them and each other. There was animus in the family. It was not a, a healthy place to go. I love my mom. I love my dad. And, and, and they, they would change things if they, they could uh, going back, but, but that's what the situation was. And, and I didn't want to go into a place uh, when I went to the church, first of all, where there was that same hatred and, and disunity that I was experiencing in my home. And uh, by the grace of God, I didn't by the grace of God, I went into a church and there were people who met me with love. 
There were people who met me with grace. There were people who met me understanding that I didn't understand the culture of Christianity. I didn't understand the lingo. I didn't understand the terms. I didn't know where the books of the Bible were, but they sat me down and they loved on me and they showed me the gospel and the gospel changed my life and is changing my life. We have people that come in today and they need the same thing. They need not a place where there's variance and animus and hatred. They need a place where there's love and unity and vision to take the unsearchable riches of Christ to the ends of the earth. Will we? I know in many churches... In America today, you'll hear a patriotic message, and I'm not against patriotic messages per se. But you know what will change America more than anything else? The gospel. You give men, women, boys, and girls the unsearchable riches of Christ, it'll change everything about them.